You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this. You'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, what's in a name? Well, for starters, a ton of money. The money will start a flying as we talk about athletic arena naming rights deals. For all of time, we've had to face a very real truth. We will all die someday. But what if we didn't? Well, some people with a lot of money are trying to find out. It's almost Christmas time. That means one thing. And no, not eggnog every night and tons of new annoying toys for your kids. It's time for the Hallmark Christmas Movie Marathon. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. For the record, only one person on this podcast likes eggnog, and it is not me. Oh, no, I have no shame in that. Eggnog's delicious. I actually almost bought some tonight. Actually, I think I will as soon as we're done. (laughs) Ah, Jay, my man, a lot can happen in four years. I mean, just think about something very prominent in your life, my friend. Your kids. You didn't even have kids four years ago, and now you have three. Doesn't it just blow your mind when you think how quickly things can change? Yeah, I mean, I had you know two at once with twins, so it kind of... I'm just trying to add some context. Like, I didn't have three separate births <laughs> in four years. You definitely came in hot. I mean, having two to start. Just wanted to clear that up. Well, uh, Jay, it was actually less than four years ago that a cryptocurrency company, Crypto.com, was simply a personal blog site for a computer science professor from the University of Pennsylvania. That same company, now one of the biggest crypto players in the ongoing explosion of digital currency, just think about digital currency four years ago, just paid $700 million, Jay, a record to secure the naming rights for the next 20 years to what is currently known as the Staples Center in Los Angeles a sports venue that is home to many things, but most notably the NBA teams, the Los Angeles Lakers and the Los Angeles Clippers. Jay, $700 million for 20 years, or about $35 million a year, just to name a building after a company. Like, why would anyone pay that much money for something like that? Well, let's explore the wild world of stadium naming rights. Naming rights have been around in the U.S. for over a hundred years, dating back to the first known naming rights contract, the iconic Fenway Park in 1912. Fenway, home to the Major League Baseball team, the Boston Red Sox, was named after a realty company also owned by the stadium's owner. Mr. Fenway, the owner, obviously, thought that maybe there was some promotional value in naming the stadium after his other company, and boom, Fenway Park was born. The same happened in 1926 with another iconic baseball stadium, Wrigley Field, home to the Chicago Cubs, named after the legendary William Wrigley of Wrigley Chewing Gum fame. And Jay, I will add, I went to a game at Wrigley a long time ago, big Braves fan, Chipper Jones, it was his last season with the Braves. The ticket said obstructed view on it, and I thought, well, obstructed view, what's that mean? (laughs) Wrigley's so old 
and was built when they really didn't think about the experience of seeing a game. When they say obstructive view, dude, they weren't kidding. There was a beam in front of me. I couldn't even see any of the game. I would love to see like an outside photo of you sitting in that seat with a huge beam right in your face. (laughs) Tears glistening down my cheeks. But Jay, even with those early naming situations, it was more of an ode to the person than a marketing strategy. Those days, though, as evidenced by Crypto.com, are long gone. The value, at least the perceived value, of using naming rights as a sort of billboard that would reach millions of potential customers per year and a cash cow for the stadium owner didn't explode until the 1990s. In fact, Jay, 1999 is seen by industry insiders as when the market for naming rights just went crazy. That year, FedEx agreed to pay the then Washington Redskins football team $205 million over 27 years for the naming rights to the team's football stadium. And the big deals just started flowing from there, and they've never stopped. A few notable ones. MetLife, $400 million over 25 years to the New York Giants. Reliant Energy, $320 million over 32 years for the Houston Texans. And Barclays Bank. $400 million over 20 years to the Brooklyn Nets. And also, at this point, it's worth noting, and time will tell with Crypto.com, but sometimes these deals don't age well for the reputation of the company. For example, Jay, your boys at Enron, the famous energy company that collapsed, dripping in scandal in the early 2000s, had secured the name of the Houston Astros field for 30 years As soon as the company, though, filed for bankruptcy due to the scandal, the Astros began a quest to buy back the naming rights, getting it at a much more discounted $2 million, eventually selling it to Coca-Cola for its now very successful and very non-scandal-stained Minute Maid Park. So now we ask the question, all the money for all these years, does it even matter? Do these companies ever receive a return on their investment? According to research conducted by the Sports Business Research Network, not really. Over half of the responders indicated in the research that the naming of a stadium had nothing, or at the very high end, very, very little, to do with influencing their purchasing habits. Michael Leeds, a sports economist at Temple University, conducted a study published as a stadium by any other name, the value of naming rights, in which he examined 25 years of data and came to this conclusion. We find little evidence that the purchase of naming rights had a statistically significant impact on the value of the companies that bought them, wrote Leeds. Even less evidence that the impact was positive and no evidence at all that there was a permanent positive impact. So Jay, there you have it. While fans may miss the Lakers playing at the Staples Center, they probably weren't shopping at Staples before and won't be shopping at Staples after. Naming rights deals simply come down to this. Companies with a lot of money will almost always think that buying something like the naming rights to a stadium is good for business. And teams and stadium owners will always gladly take that big wad of cash. I just look forward to the day that we just commercialize it all. Let's put ads on the jerseys of the athletes. Let's 
you know, sell off every number on the hash mark of an NFL field. Let's uh, let's just name the teams, not the Dallas Cowboys anymore, but maybe the FedEx Cowboys. First down for the Packers, and that first down, fans, is brought to you <laughs> by McDonald's. Ba-da-da-da-da. And he needs 10 yards to get this first down. And speaking of 10, you can get 10% off your insurance by switching to Geico. <laughs> So, Dave, let's say that you have a net worth of $210.7 billion, which is, by the way, the net worth of Jeff Bezos, and all your needs are taken care of. Uh, what's your first project with that, uh, with that amount of money? Well, when I was a kid, I had a bad track record of dating women who uh, owned lake houses, like their families had lake houses and they had jet skis. Kind of a humble brag. <laughs> yeah, well, I feel like I'd, I'd probably do that. I'd, I'd probably buy myself a lake house and maybe a couple jet skis. <laughs> well, Dave... Bezos, you know, he uh, he might not be thinking as much about the lake house. He's thinking more about the idea of living forever. So. He's thinking of, of, <laughs> of owning the lake. Let me, uh, <laughs> let me tell you a little bit about uh, where I'm going with this. The saying goes, impermanence makes something beautiful. And for all our history, and not to get heavy on you here, but we've had to reckon with the incoming end of it all, our inevitable deaths. But paired with that, there has always been a fascination and at times an obsession with the idea of conquering the ultimate fate, attaining immortality, and ending death once and for all. The idea dates back pretty much as long as we've been roaming this earth in an organized way. Uh, 2,200 years ago, the first emperor of China, Qin Shi Huang, actually put out an executive order to search for a potion that would give him eternal life. Now, unfortunately for the emperor, he consumed mercury sulfide, which is very poisonous, and it killed him at 50 years old. But still, the idea was there. (laughs) Now, Buddhist monks in Japan at times between the 11th and 18th centuries tried to enter self-mummified meditative states to enter eternity while preserving their physical bodies. Now, although part of this ritual included consuming only tree bark and a poisonous tea and then being buried alive, again, it's the thought that counts here. So, then what is our status today with trying to obtain immortality? Well, you may be surprised by the growing list of tech billionaires who want to try. Amazon's Jeff Bezos, Alphabet's Larry Page, Oracle's Larry Ellison, and Plantier's Peter Thiel are just a few who are interested in the emerging field of what is called longevity, which is the science of researching ways to prolong life, maybe not forever, but at least for well past our normal expiration date. But if this sort of technology and medicine can exist, which, by the way, many respected minds are convinced it's only a matter of time before it will, is it destined to only benefit the elite or all of mankind? Well, there's a couple different ways of looking at it. Stefan Schubert, a researcher for the London School of Economics and Political Science, says it this way, Technologies that are initially only affordable to the rich typically become more widely available with time. So, Dave, this perspective sort of lays out a vision of a trickle-down of technology, where ultimately, the public will eventually gain access to better end-of-life care or medical practices to extend life. But others raise concerns over a world population that already strains the natural resources we have, one that would presumably stick around longer and then consume more of those resources. 
And on the other hand, vast majority of healthcare costs in our country are spent on end-of-life care. So more research towards better end-of-life care stands to save resources in another way. According to Sam Sheet at CNBC, Jeff Bezos, who is, as of the taping of this podcast, worth $210.7 billion, has invested at least a part of that into a rejuvenation startup company called Altos Labs. The founder of Oracle, Larry Ellison, has donated more than $370 million to research about aging, according to The New Yorker. Peter Thiel, who co-founded PayPal and Plantier, donated $3.5 million toward anti-aging research and then upped his investment to $7 million by 2017, according to Time Magazine. Thiel and Bezos both have invested in Unity Biotechnology, a company that aims to eliminate life-ending diseases. And entrepreneur Dave Asprey, the founder of the wellness empire Bulletproof, has experimented with stem cell injections and cellular regeneration, or basically the idea of replacing cells within the body as they die. Others, such as George Church, a Harvard professor and founder of Rejuvenate Bio, claims to have prevented aging in animals by adding anti-aging instructions to DNA. So the point here, Dave, of it all is the research is marching on. And for what it's worth, Silicon Valley thinks that it's closer than ever to cracking the code and tweaking the human body to live much longer. So, Dave, what can you do today? I feel that that's the question that you have. And the answer is, well, we're not quite there yet. But if you're interested, the firm Alcor, based in Scottsdale, Arizona, which markets themselves as the world leader in cryonics, which is the process of freezing a body after death, is offering a package deal to freeze your body indefinitely until technology can be invented to allow the body to be brought back to life for only $705 a year, or about half of that for only your brain. They currently have 1,379 members and 184 bodies currently on ice, if you were wondering. Well, isn't Walt Disney already frozen somewhere? I don't know anything about I, that. I'm pretty sure that Walt Disney uh, has been frozen in like some cryogenic tomb when he comes back. I mean, just think about that. Think what world he left, and then he'd be <laughs> transported into this world. He go, all my movies are available on the same <laughs> streaming service? And then I he'd can't. die again. He'd have a heart First attack. First of all, your, your, voice, your voice for Walt Disney, I just don't understand. It's like you're kind of trying to be Mickey Mouse for some reason, uh, which I guess, you know, I see the connection. So, Jay, we just passed Thanksgiving, which for most folks marks the beginning of the best time of the year, my man, the holiday season. Now, since the pandemic changed and or canceled the holiday plans of many of us last year, myself included, I've seen a ton of holiday decorations pop up early this year, some even as early as October. So, Jay, holiday season prep comes with the tradition. So what's your tradition look like for launching the most wonderful time of the year? Uh, I'm still kind of a holdout. I usually wait until after Thanksgiving to put up the Christmas decorations. So just when you get around to it, you don't go, all right, it's Black Friday. I'm going to put up the tree. Yeah, I mean, if it's like the Saturday or Sunday after or something like that. You did leave your Christmas tree up until April one year. We'll talk about that later. That is entirely false. 
Well, Jay, while some Christmas traditions revolve around the purchase of the Christmas tree and others, like yourself, center around just getting up the tree whenever you feel like it, millions of people around the world are gearing up for an annual Christmas movie tradition. But not just any Christmas movie tradition. No, 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 no. We're not talking about Elf or a Christmas story. We're talking about the annual Hallmark Channel Christmas Movie Marathon. Jay, since the 1990s, people have been tuning into the Hallmark Channel between Halloween and the New Year to watch original Christmas movies, like a lot of people. Last year, nearly 85 million people tuned in to watch one or all of the over 40 original brand new holiday films produced every year exclusively by the Hallmark Company. Award-winning films like Sense, Sensibility, and Snowmen, or a personal favorite of mine, The Christmas Train. These films feature formulaic plot lines, dreamy, small, quaint Christmas towns, and a mixture of attractive acting talent that you've never seen before, and harking back to our A-list discussion a few weeks ago, actors that you know you've seen somewhere, you just can't remember where. So how did this holiday tradition that people either love to love or love to hate come about? Let's explore the holiday magic of the Hallmark Christmas Movie Marathon. For starters, these movies represent a masterclass in creative efficiency. With a reported budget of only $2 million per film, most movies are shot in Canada to take advantage of the generous Canadian tax breaks. Vancouver, for example, Jay, is one of the most popular filming destinations. And while most of the films that you'll see in the theaters, films like the recent blockbuster Dune, can take years to film, most Hallmark movies are shot in two to three weeks. Ron Oliver, a veteran director of Hallmark films, compares the process of filming a Hallmark movie to that of the famous movie Casablanca, a movie that was said to have been filmed in its entirety in only 18 days. Oliver says a commitment to formula and strategy makes this feat consistently possible for the Hallmark Christmas movies. The tight filming schedule also opens the door for recognizable acting talent. Holiday movie veteran Candace Cameron Bure, for example, perhaps best known for playing DJ Tanner on the show Full House, is consistently in holiday movies year in and year out because of the limited commitment required for each project. How about the snow? For such a low budget, Hallmark films have to get creative when it comes to snowfall during a midsummer filming schedule. Each film typically spends a reported $50,000 to simulate snow in a variety of ways. Ice shavings, hundreds of feet of snow blankets, and the use of snow-mimicking bubbles are among the most popular methods. And Jay, the popularity of these movies has helped to keep cable television afloat, believe it or not, during a time where people are cutting the cord as fast as possible. Millions of viewers watch every Christmas movie when it airs live, not following the on-demand trend of watching it when you want to. And this appointment viewing preference is reflected in the reporting numbers. Hallmark frequently outperforms all of the broadcast network numbers among women during the last month every year. Hallmark movie fans even have their own convention. Hallmark Channel sponsors Christmas Con, a yearly celebration of holiday movies in New Jersey, a gathering that sells out almost instantly every year. But Jay, the success of Hallmark holiday magic really comes down to a psychological reason. 
The holiday movies register like a drug with the reward part of our brains. Behavioral scientist Pamela Rutledge explained to CNBC in 2019 that the predictable plots and familiar settings help viewers relax and unwind from the drama going on in their own personal lives. The lack of reality at all levels, from plot to production, signals that the movies are meant to be escapism entertainment, Rutledge said. The genre is well-defined and our expectations follow. This enables us to suspend disbelief and enjoy. So how many of these movies have you actually seen? Uh, none. <laughs> so I always end up watching a couple because I'm either like at a family member's house and th- they've got one on or like my wife will get hooked on one and we'll finish it. And so I've seen a few and the formulas are hilariously the same. <laughs> like it's always like Annabelle, she, you know, left small town, moved to the big city. She's a big successful girl and she's bringing home her new boyfriend back to the small town and he's worth a lot of money, but he's kind of a jerk. And while she's in the small town, she runs into her old uh, high school friend who's never left his small town. He still works at a bookstore and they reconnect and she realizes that she actually, you know, loves him instead and that uh, she really loves the small town over the big city. That's by design. And, and there are, of course, lists. Everything has lists. So there are some internet folks who have put together lists of the best and worst Hallmark movies ever. Now, what they call the best Hallmark Christmas movie ever stars Sam Elliott. It's called November Christmas. November Christmas, the 2010 movie, is about a little girl with cancer. Town members put past grudges behind them to help create a Christmas in November for the ill child. The worst Christmas movie, according to this list on the Hallmark Channel of all time, is A Cheerful Christmas. It's about cheerleaders, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. Friends Lauren and Colleen are Christmas coaches who help clients plan the perfect Christmas. They take on their hardest client yet, a royal family, who prove very hard to get into the Christmas spirit. The family's adult son, James, begins opening up to Lauren as the friends desperately try to make the family happy. The end. Uh, There's some magic there that we're missing, I guess. Also one of the worst Christmas movies is uh, Mr. Miracle from 2014. A guardian angel disguised as an attractive male English teacher helps a young woman find her way. (laughs) I'm sure he does. Guardian angels helping people on Christmas. I mean, it's been done a few times. Like, let's... let's, uh... Let's throw that one on the back burner for a few years. And that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Cobb. We'll see you next week.